Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A major prison revolt broke out at Ware State Prison in Georgia on August 1st. Outside supporters have pointed to extreme medical negligence during the pandemic as a major motivation for the rebels. Multiple areas of the prison were set ablaze and two guards were stabbed during fighting. Guards shot three prisoners, forcing other inmates to convert cells into a makeshift medic post where they applied bandages made from clothing. Three days later, outside supporters organized a car caravan protest in solidarity with the rebellion. We'll have more on this as more information comes in. The lawsuit Scott v. Pennsylvania Board of Probation and Parole, which the Center for Constitutional Rights filed with the Abolitionist Law Center and Amistad Law Project, is the country's first challenge to death by incarceration sentences, commonly known as life without parole. The lawsuit challenges Pennsylvania's prohibition on parole eligibility for people serving life sentences after convictions for felony murder. In Pennsylvania, people convicted of felony murder face a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment, even when they didn't take a life or didn't intend to in the course of a crime. A separate provision of the law prohibits parole eligibility for anyone serving life. In the lawsuit, the attorneys argue that mandatory life without parole sentences for those who didn't kill or didn't intend to kill are unconstitutionally cruel. The attorneys are thereby joining a movement of currently and formerly incarcerated people and calling life without parole death by incarceration. The lawsuit is on behalf of six plaintiffs serving death by incarceration sentences after being convicted of felony murder in their late teens or early 20s. All have spent 23 to 47 years in prison. Despite their sentences, none caused or intended the death of the victim. This week, we air the final part of a conversation between Christina Byers and Anastasia Schmid on education in prison. In this segment, we hear more about the biases incarcerated people face while attempting to secure a degree. In a system rife with obstacles to keep prisoners from achieving their goals, Schmid describes applying for an advanced degree while in prison and how even quote-unquote radical academic institutions still discriminate against those who have been convicted of felonies. Schmid overturned her wrongful conviction in 2019 and was freed after nearly two decades inside. You can hear previous stories with Anastasia on our website. Being in the History Project, starting to present my research and my findings across the country on these academic presentations, uh, it it gave some semblance of a decent livability to life in what is otherwise a very destitute and oppressive circumstance. And then that is what opened the door for me to eventually go a step further. As I was told, there we were presenting our research at conferences and there were so many people, you know, just blown away by the work and the research. And yes, it's amazing work and it's great and it's wonderful. And, you know, on the one hand, we're receiving really high accolades and recognition and awards are starting to come in for us as a whole, as well as for several of us individually. Uh, We start getting articles published in different places. So major strides were being made forward. Uh, However, there will be a skeptic no matter where you are in life, and we certainly were no exception. 
Uh, so at one of the particular conferences, I'm not even 100% sure which one it was, but there were our professors who had been coming inside, working with us for a substantial period of time at this point, actually at the conference physically that we were presenting at via Skype. While there were so many people saying the work is great, there were that few skeptics in there. Well, sure, you know, yeah, it's nice. Those were decent papers, but um, these people are not graduate level material. To which Dr. Kaufman and several of the others that have been working inside with us adamantly disagreed. No, um, we think you're completely wrong. We think they're every bit as good as any college student in the outside world, maybe better. And so, you know, a minor argument ensued for a while <laughs> over whether incarcerated people had the same level of mental capacity or not. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, uh, Dr. Nicole Siegel, who is from IU Bloomington, uh, said, no, you know, I think they absolutely are capable and um, I'm absolutely going to let them into one of my graduate classes and we're going to see what happens. So the fight then began with administration on how were they going to get some of us into this graduate class while we were still in prison. And what ended up happening was that Michelle Jones and I were the two that ended up being selected for the opportunity to essentially be the guinea pigs to experiment in can incarcerated people handle graduate level work. By the time IU and the prison administration and all these parties and entities that have to become a part and on board and on the same page in order to make this happen, by the time all of that was solidified, the semester was five weeks underway. Nicole's wow. class was a three hour long class. So they're five weeks into the semester once we finally get approval to do this. So it was literally on a Friday that Dr. Kaufman comes to the prison with an enormous box of books that she hands to Michelle and I, and she says, good news, the prison and everybody finally approved this. You'll be starting class next week. However, they're already five weeks in, so here's all the material that they've already read in this five weeks. You need to be caught all the way up to speed, plus here's your work for that night, so you'll be prepared for discussion in class. Sorry to say, they would only allow you to be on Skype for an hour and a half of the three hours of the class because of count time, so you will be coming in for the second half of the class, which means the students were already engaged in the discussion at hand when the screen would pop on and Michelle and I would be present. So we begin grad school having to get five weeks worth of work under our belt in less than a week's time to start class with no computers, no outside resource materials. Uh, we even had to jump through hoops sometimes to try to find a dictionary compatible enough to have half the words that were in our readings even in there for definitions. I mean, so uh, to say that this was monumental is an understatement. But, you know, nonetheless, and, and then there's the trepidation that, you know, Michelle and I graduated with our bachelor's in 2006. I mean, damn near a decade of time we had not been in formal education. And now here we are in grad school with Ph.D. students in the outside world. 
And yeah. uh, no light topic either. Dr. Mikol's class was genocide, dispossession, and debt, for God's sakes. I mean, wow. there there were books that she assigned for reading that a single book for a single week was in excess of 400 pages. I, and I'm not joking. So um, if there were ever a class that would have put a human being to the test of can they handle it or not, that was it. Wow. And uh, we did it. And we held our own. And at the end of the semester, it was uh, Dr. Mikol's uh, words to all the students, you were excellent students, not excellent incarcerated students, just excellent students. And our very last class session that semester, uh, the prison granted permission for that entire IU class to actually come inside the prison and have a face-to-face class session with Michelle and I for the final day of the semester and um, I mean the learning experience on both sides of that equation we don't have enough time or words to describe that Uh, but that was the beginning so that was our first class and uh, you know hey when can we do it again and then we went through the feat of how do we get to do this again next semester Uh, and so we did end up taking a second class through IU Um, and so let's say for all the greatness and all the amazingness that this afforded the two of us and all parties involved now let's get to the one obstacle and the one downfall that we have as incarcerated people even though Michelle and I did every single bit of the work that those outside students did every bit of the same amount of work in the same amount of time, the same papers, the same exams, the same in-class participation, the same everything. Out of two classes, IU was only willing to actually grant us a single credit for all of that work that we had done. On the maximum end of the spectrum, that should have been eight credit hours. I mean, two full load graduate study courses. And we received one. So you you did receive one. Yeah. Now we've got a taste and we want to keep going. So then we go on to take a class at University of California, Riverside with Dr. Andrea Smith. And that was an amazing opportunity. So now we're Skyping to California and we're in grad school in California. And I I mean, that was beyond words amazing. Uh, We ended up taking classes and doing symposiums and having an entire semester-long graduate-level project with the DePauw students. So we're doing classes with students at DePauw. And at this point in time, DePauw is actually presenting our research and our published articles to their students. So between the conferences and the presentations and now the graduate experience we have, it's not just us saying we want to go to grad school, it's grad school saying, hey, who are these two women and how do we get them? And so it's at this point in time that Dr. Kaufman and some others start talking to Michelle and I about, hey, we think it's time. You guys need to start applying to schools. Wow. So you actually started applying um, while you were still, still had some time left on your sentence. How, how did you get from that point to where you are now 
um, in this chair, in this studio on campus at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so, you know, the story gets a little more interesting before it gets smooth sailing. Um, for me, yes, there was still a substantial chunk of time left on the sentence right about this time. Uh, as fate would have it, though, um, I ended up winning my case in the U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, it was the first major victory I had had legally after years and years and years of fighting a wrongful conviction. Finally, the court unanimously sided with me. Now, again, at this point in time, uh, here was all of our ignorance, inside and outside people alike, thinking, yay, you just won. Surely you're going to be released any moment now. Yes, absolutely. Apply to grad schools right now because everyone assumed that I would be out of prison within that year. And so that sort of expedites uh, the process of us saying, let's apply and let's apply right now. So for me, I started researching schools across the country and I got my eyes and my heart and my little mind set on Reed College in Oregon, you know, uh, purported to be the most radical thinking university in our country. And, you know, there's artists and there's activists and these great thinkers and everything about the environment was so conducive, not only to the person I am, but the work that I was doing and the work I was hoping to expand into doing. And so I applied to read. And I mean, my God, we could go on and on about the ridiculousness of what that process looked like. I mean, first of all, no incarcerated person is ever, and I mean ever, going to be able to do this without the help of an outside assistant and liaison. So were it not for Dr. Kaufman and all these other professors I was working with that were able to obtain the applications for me, send the applications back, fight for application fees to be weighed, uh, jump through all those hoops and do that back and forth between me and this college, it never would have happened, period. You know, so the tremendous amount of time and uh, human power behind the outside person and what they had to do to help me through the process is uh, just astronomical. Um, so we get through all this, and, and here's almost the irony of it. Here was the other thing. One other main reason I choose Reed. Being this radical college that they claim to be, Reed at the moment was one of the colleges that did not have the box on the application that they're wanting you to check it if you're a convicted felon or not. So we thought, yes, here's school that automatically is not even asking the question. Now let's get here. Reed College is well aware that they have to send to me in the mail when the entire rest of the world is doing this online, a paper application into a prison with a DOC number attached to the backside of my name. Okay, so let's get there. You absolutely know where you're sending this application from jump. So I get the application, we fill the application out, the people go through the process of scanning it, getting it back into them, doing all the things they have to do. And then Dr. Kaufman gets a call from one of the administrators at Reed College. Yes, we've received Anastasia's application, and it's amazing, and this, that, and the other. Um, however, uh, she didn't answer a question, and it's our fault because it's not on the paper version. The paper version's actually obsolete now, would have been in the online application. We need her to check the box on being a convicted felon. Wow. Yeah, wow. I mean, first of all, 
I don't know about you, Christina, but I'm yet to find somebody who's living inside a maximum security prison who wasn't a convicted felon. I mean, now, whether you're guilty of the felony or not is irrelevant. The point being, you had to have been convicted of a felony to be living inside the prison where these people just sent me the application to. So it, it's almost an insult to intelligence saying, after you've already sent this to me in a prison, that, oh, oh well, I need to go through the technicality of checking, yes, I am a convicted felon on their box for the application. And and what impact did that, essentially that tiny little box, have on your ability to attend Reed? Well, I mean, tons, because now it's no longer just about my academic standing. It's no longer just about, am I appropriate intellectual material for their graduate program? Now you're scrutinizing me as a person and my entire personal life and my entire history before you're going to make a determination as to whether I can go to your school or not. So uh, all of a sudden, this application process and the interview process takes on a whole new level of something that somebody without the felony, uh, they would never have to experience or undergo. So I go through several interview processes by phone with the administrators at Reed College and the head of the departments. Uh, we have amazing conversations. The people are great. The departments are awesome. The program seems amazing. Uh, they're highly impressed with me. They actually call me back several times for multiple interviews. I mean, this is very, very promising. And when we get down to the final state of acceptance or non-acceptance, I get a lovely letter, and my God, I wish I had it with me right now so I could just read it to you verbatim. I get a letter from Reed College that in a nutshell basically states that Reed and Reed's administrators feel, they feel that it would be in my best interest to get out of prison and be out of prison for over a year before I reapply to the school because they think I need no less than a year to readjust to my life in the outside world before starting a program. Okay, I need a second to take that in. So they've decided that for your best interest, not for theirs, that it's better for you to be outside a year. Did they give you any kind of recommendation of what they felt you needed to do to prepare well, to attend? Absolutely not. I mean, it's it's just this very much uh, paternalistic view. You know, I like to call it father's knows best that, well, daddy said, because you're just not ready. That's what many incarcerated people are told, if they're even given the opportunity. So I'm, I'm sure that was discouraging, especially after all the, the time invested and uh, in all of these interviews where I'm sure you had to, had to talk about some things that felt somewhat invasive and, and maybe things that, that you were um, not forced to, but that you felt compelled to talk about um, in order to be deemed admissible. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you turned that frustration and disappointment into where you're at now? Okay, well, for one, uh, I have one hell of a tenacious spirit. I'm not ever giving up on anything that I uh, have my heart and my mind set on. And so uh, I was going to school 
hell or high water. I'm going to school somewhere. This will happen. I mean, I was a bit disheartened at the time to think, what, the most radical college in the country? This is what's just happened? My God, what's this going to look like now? You know, so I start looking at other schools. Uh, clearly, things were moving at a snail's pace with the court system that did not go down nearly as quickly as we would have thought. Uh, time was dragging on. Uh, I continued to pursue my research. I continued to write and push for my work to be published in various different sources. Uh, throughout this time, I end up transferring facilities. I ended up at a different facility. You know, there, that's a whole separate story of not only the transition to the new facility, but um, having to basically prove who I am and the work that I was doing to once again gain access to resources, to people on the outside coming in, uh, to be able to Skype from that prison then into conferences and continue my work. Um, so it's in the process of continuing the work I was already doing now in another facility uh, that I start working with Dr. Elizabeth Nelson. So Dr. Nelson, who is a professor here at IUPUI in medical humanities, ends up becoming an assistant to me in my research and the work I'm doing uh, with the History Project. And my work had expanded at that point in time from IWP onto uh, the Madison State Hospital and Correctional Facility, which is where I was then spending time. And so Dr. Nelson starts coming in. She's working with me one-on-one -on -one very intensively. I'm continuing with the writing and the research. And at some point in time, she tells me, hey, here's another educational opportunity for you for grad school. And I think the work you're doing and the person you are and what you're doing, you're a perfect fit for the program that I happen to be a professor in at IUP. Why? And I think you should apply. And so it's at that time that she begins navigating the application process with me uh, for Medical Humanities Graduate Study Program here at IUPUI. And how did, uh, how did you get connected to Professor Nelson? Uh, through Dr. Kaufman. Somewhere through the network, uh, she ended up knowing her and she started volunteering time and resources to the History Project. She took a particular interest in my work because her own work is in 17th century French asylums. And so she was very much interested in the work I was doing and vested in assisting me in the process of what I was doing. So here again, um, if, if it were not for um, the intervention by Dr. Kaufman, she not only got you connected to those people, but she actually made conversations possible that even back to the Reed interviews, um, those interviews wouldn't have just happened on their own if you didn't have a separate space, which I'm sure required other staff to intervene as well in order to give you a space where you could have those conversations because let's face it, uh, most colleges are not gonna accept collect calls from oh. us to just cold call people. No, so. but let me get here. Uh, with Reed in that interview process, I actually did have to prepay on my own account to make the phone calls to Reed from the prison telephone system because that was one thing the administration was not agreeing to. They said, oh, sure, all that's great, but if you want to interview with these people, you're going to do it on your time and you're done. Wow. And so I paid out of my pocket uh, for phone calls that are, oh, you know, no less than $6 for 15 minutes multiple calls to read college on interviews. So potentially, you know, a month or two salary for yeah. you. Yeah, so I mean, you know, once again, 
uh, the average person, it would have ended right there. They wouldn't have even been able to interview with the college because if they couldn't have paid for it on their own, oh, well, it's not happening. You know, and then let's get here. You're constantly interrupted on a prison phone. The phone is automatically going to cut you off at 15 minutes, but there's a high probability it'll cut you off for any reason or no reason at all right in the middle, which did happen with me several times. I would have to repeatedly call back in order to complete the interviews. So I was making no less than three phone calls for every interview I had with them, and it was multiple interviews. And let's not forget the constant reminder throughout the call that they are speaking to someone in a <laughs> correctional facility. On a recorded line. On a recorded line, <laughs> yes. which does feel like it could bias uh, their opinion of, of the information you're presenting. Um, yes. Forgive me if I'm wrong. No, absolutely correct. So anyway, you know, we digressed for a minute. Let, let's come right. back to present now. So, yeah, so... Yeah, absolutely. I've got this tremendous network of people on the outside that are backing me, supporting me, and my God, hours upon hours upon hours of work they're doing on their own in order to assist me in this process to make this happen. And so now, I mean, I, I honestly have to say that I think the major difference between what happens with Reed and what happens with IUPUI is that I was already working for years with a faculty member at this institution that could go in to the board, to the dean of students, to the head of whoever she needed to talk to, the committees and the people and the thousand and one different avenues somebody has to go through in order to gain admittance into grad school to be able to speak on my behalf and vouch for me, to be able to bring uh, my writing and my applications and all the things I was doing on the inside to be that bridge to bring them to the outside uh, to uh, get me admitted into this school. And so, you know, through that support and that networking, through the tremendous amount of work I had done, through my academic record, through my CV, through all of these things, uh, I was indeed accepted to IUPUI. And uh, I began grad school on August 27th. And right about the time that I'm finding out, yep, you've been accepted to grad school at IUPUI. I am in negotiation with my attorney, with the court system on what we're going to do for my release. And so, you know, the wheels of justice move anything but fast. This whole process ends up dragging all the way on to the exact day that classes begin for me at IUPUI. So um, clerical error in court, which, you know, that's a story in and of itself. Theoretically, I should have been released on Monday the 26th and at least have had 24 hours before class started. That didn't happen. Uh, by the time the paperwork went through, the error was fixed and amended and everything was said and done. Uh, I was released from custody at, oh, I don't know, approximately 2.15 p.m. on August 27th, a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, theoretically, that first class was starting at 1.30. Now, there was no way. Clearly, I had already missed the first class, but I had two classes scheduled. My second class was beginning at 6 p.m. Uh, this is my class with Dr. Nelson. Thank God that's the way that worked out. So I left the jail at 2.15 after six days of incarceration in the county jail. And if anybody knows what that looks like, that means no shower and hygiene and pretty much a horrific state of affairs physically, mentally, emotionally. 
Uh, I was put into a car with a retired FBI agent and driven off grounds to the place I would be staying momentarily. Brought into the house I'd be staying in, had a quick mm, 45 minute to an hour crash course of welcome inside, there's the shower, jump in, you got 10 minutes, your ride's on the way to school. And um, less than four hours later, I was on the IUPUI campus walking into my first graduate class. These interviews on barriers to higher education were made possible by the Lumina Foundation. This has been KiteLine. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.